Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Massachusetts Representative Andy Vargas. Not only did he give a thoughtful and inspiring interview, he did it while holding his infant son Ruben on his lap. We talked about his efforts to expand school meals, affordable housing, and meet the needs of his community. He also shared how he decided at the age of 21 to run for office and what young candidates of color need to know about the political process. Andy Vargas gives me hope for the future of American politics. I hope he does the same for you. Enjoy. Representative Andy Vargas, welcome to an honorable profession. Great to be here. Thank you, Ryan. I should let listeners know that we have Andy's son, Ruben, is uh, joining us. So you may hear some uh, adorable baby sounds as we talk. And we can talk about sort of the challenges of elective life and childcare that so many people uh, experience. But why don't we start with, first of all, how are things going in Massachusetts? We had an election there last night. And what do you see as the political tides that are washing through Massachusetts right now? Yeah, so last night was a really exciting year in Massachusetts. We had elections all across the state. And the number one issue that we continue to hear across the state is the cost of living in Massachusetts and primarily housing. People are having a tough time making ends meet, whether it's through their rent or through their mortgage or buying a home. Housing continues to be one of the number one issues uh, in the overall grand scheme of, of cost of living here in Massachusetts. So that definitely came out strong throughout the election. And how do you think it reflects in the voters' choices and then the decisions they'll make in November? Yeah, I mean, I think voters chose candidates that they found to be real and authentic, candidates that they saw in their neighborhoods, candidates that were speaking in language and in values that they understood and that resonated with them. And I think that it was another election cycle that proved that the old school retail politics door to door, seeing folks in community will always have a greater effect than sort of the social media perception that, that's created that often does not match uh, what we see uh, at the ballot box. I mean, I think, just think we're seeing that over and over and over again, where there's one conversation that's happening online amongst one, one group of people, and then a whole different conversation that's going on in neighborhoods and real life. How do you balance trying to, as a representative, trying to hear the online voice, but then also make sure you're engaged with the voices in your downtown and in your neighborhoods? Yeah, I mean, there really is no replacement for being physically in community. I mean, I think during the pandemic, we did our best via Zoom to be able to do that and through you know, community conference calls and uh, Zoom events and <laughs> getting people to book their vaccination appointment, engaging with them on those phone calls. 
but there really is no replacement. And social media is a great tool to sort of quickly get information out there, but not everyone's out there on social media. And so we have to be cognizant of the fact that we have to meet people where they're at. And still, the vast majority of people are not getting the majority of their day-to-day information when it comes to solving their own personal problems via social media. They might be getting passive national information on social media, but their day-to-day solutions are found in the interactions that they have with real people. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Can you talk a little bit about your path into public service and the in-person activities that led to that? Ruben has that as well. (laughs) Yes, he does. Yeah, he says I have no more uh, personal (laughs) path. It's all about him now. (laughs) So I come from a very large Dominican family that came to the U.S. in the 1980s and sought to, like many immigrants, build a better life for the generations that came after. And come from a household where my mother is a nurse. Uh, my dad started his own nonprofit here in the U.S. to help send equipment and medical supplies to the Dominican Republic, particularly when hospitals had excess supplies or were throwing out hospital beds or equipment. And so I grew up in an environment of service and kind of always had an idea of wanting to serve in some capacity or another. I also grew up in in a really interesting social environment in that I was the only Latino kid in my AP and honors classes. And I constantly found myself being not, you know, just to be candid, quote unquote, hood enough for some of the Latino, my Latino friends in, in other classes or my cousins, and then quote unquote, not white enough for my peers in my AP and honors classes in high school. And so growing up in Haverhill, my hometown, wasn't easy as a young person. And I found myself often falling into the usual line of thinking that young people from mid-sized cities across the country and small cities and towns across the country have, which is, how do I work my butt off, go to a good school, and live in one of the big cities across the country, whether that's Boston, New York, D.C., L.A., Chicago. And that, for a while, was my mentality. I knew I wanted to do something in service in a big city because that's what young people are told in small to mid-sized cities across the country. So I went to Boston University. I did all sorts of internships and experiences at the State House. I interned at the U.S. Embassy in Madrid and then uh, did an internship in the Obama White House as well. And then my senior year of college, something kind of really clicked with me. And it was that the exact reason why I wanted to leave Haverhill and not come back was the reason why I needed to come back. When I looked at the leadership in the city among the city council, the school committee, the mayor, it didn't reflect the demographics of the community. And I really felt that there was a, a void that I could fill, that I could uh, serve as a young person, as someone who represented the Latino community as well, uh, which was you know about a quarter of our population and about half of our public school students. And so there was a void that I felt like I could fill back here at home instead of you know, staying in a big city like most young people from small to mid-sized cities feel like they have to do. And so I decided to not contribute to that brain drain that we often see in small to mid-sized cities. And I came back home and decided I was going to run for city council. I pulled nomination papers at 21. I marched my family down to city hall just to pull the nomination papers. And I had to explain to them, like, we haven't won anything yet. We're just pulling the papers, guys. Like, this isn't like a, a parade. But the whole family wanted to go into City Hall and because it was a historic sort of moment for them. 
And I remember one of the staff members in the city clerk's office said, what is this, the Dominican Day Parade? Is that what's going on here? (laughs) And we pulled papers. We ran for city council in 2015. I was 21 when I pulled papers. Um, Ended up turning 22 a couple months later. There are nine city councilors. Eight incumbents were running. Total of 18 candidates. And we needed to come top nine. And we placed third in my first run for office. And so I joined the city council at 22 years old, became the city's first Latino elected official and uh, began serving uh, my community over the course of two years. And then much of politics often is is unplanned. We had my predecessor, Representative Brian Dempsey, who was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee here in Mass, decided to move on from his seat uh, two years after I had joined uh, the city council. And so that opened up the opportunity to run for state representative and serve my community in a higher capacity and be able to begin to address some of the systems level issues at the state level. And so threw my hat in the ring for that. We had a primary, we had a general, and we were able to win both of those. And I've been serving in the Massachusetts House of Representatives since 2017. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like, the challenges and the opportunities that come with being a young Latino voice or and the first Latino voice in an elected body? And how do you navigate all the challenges and opportunities that come with that? Yeah, I think, you know, there are definitely challenges. There are also strengths that come with it. When I joined the city council, particularly as a young person, there's all sorts of notions that people have around young people in our politics, right? That young people are impatient, that they are unreasonable, that they want to blow up the system overnight. And, and many do want to, you know, do want to change the system overnight. But the reality is, is that, you know, many of us know that it takes time, it takes coalition building, it takes relationship building to actually move an agenda forward. And so when I joined the city council, I was 22. And the first thing I did was really just listen and spend time to get to know my colleagues. So I had coffee with every single one of the city councilors on there. I asked them what their priorities were, what issues they had been working on, where we could find alignment so that the issues that I found to be important, I could also align with them on if they had been working on that issue already. And also to just get to know them on a personal level and allow them to get to know me on a personal level as well. So that when it came time to propose policy or to try to build a coalition, we already had a rapport, a relationship and had established trust. And we had uh, sort of deactivated any of that sort of stigma that comes with, oh, you know, a new young person uh, in elected office. Uh, and so that paid dividends and we were able to build coalitions on the city council to improve our education system here, to provide more financial transparency to how taxpayer dollars were being spent here. And so that really paid dividends. And then in terms of being a Latino candidate, there are certainly challenges that come with that when you go door to door, but they're few and far between. You know, sometimes you get people, you know, I had one person when I went to a door that opened up and said, no, thanks. We don't want Haverhill turning into Lawrence. And, And Lawrence is a city nearby that is about 90% Latino, uh, and most of their elected officials are Latino. So you've got some of those few and far between. You also get pigeonholed as, you know, quote unquote, the Latino candidate. And the perception is, oh, you know, he's really running for them, not for all of us. And and of course, that's nothing could be further for the the truth. I'm running for my entire community, a community that raised me. Folks of all backgrounds played a role in my life. And I'm, you know, more than excited to represent everyone. But I think that there were more strengths than there were challenges because I was able to speak a different language, excite folks who are young, who are seniors, who 
spoke a different language and, and really meet them where they're at. And so I definitely think that being young, being, you know, a Dominican American candidate played more of a, a strength than a, than a challenge. What advice do you have for someone out there, maybe a young Latino, Latina, who's thinking about getting involved in their community, maybe through elective office, maybe through other kinds of service? Where do they start? So the first place to start is think about what issue you really care about. I think too many people begin with what office they want. And I think that that leads down to a a dangerous path, because if your first thought is, this is the office that I want, and once you get there, then your priority is always going to be viewing your role from that lens of how do I preserve what I want, which is that office. Whereas if you start with, I care about education, or I care about climate justice, or I care about infrastructure, whatever issue is super important to you, that lens will make sure that you stay on track and on path with your decision making, regardless of the office that you're in. And so first and foremost, I would sit down and find the issue that you care about and then find somebody who's working on it already. There's probably somebody out there, an organization or an individual in your community that also cares about it and ask, how can I help? And then once you do that, you can start to Think about, you know, what are the entities, what are the offices that really can play a role in moving the agenda forward on that issue that you're so passionate about? And so, yeah, I would sit down and think about what is the issue you care about, who's working on it already, and then what offices can really move the needle on that issue. I think that's incredibly good advice. And hopefully there's a bunch of people out there who listen and and take it. Let's talk about one of the issues that you move forward, which is the Universal School Meals Program which is a tremendous effort that you got through the legislature last year. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that and why you chose that as the issue that you were going to spend time and effort on? Yeah. So I think when I first got into politics, I thought a lot about opportunity, right? And a lot of elected officials, we talk about that we want to create opportunities for people to live out their American dream, to live up to their full potential. But I think what comes before opportunity is ensuring that people have their basic necessities met. And what I mean by that is nutrition, housing, healthcare. These are basic things that people should have so that they can even be ready to accept an opportunity. Because we can create all these jobs, we can create all these opportunities for people, but ultimately if they're not ready, if they're not well-fed, then they're not going to be ready to take advantage of those opportunities. And so I I like to say that I took a step back and, and started to think about what are the bare necessities policies and I really like that term because as a kid, my favorite movie was Jungle Book. So I often tell my staff and they cringe when I do this, that we need to look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. And once we focus on that, then people can be ready for the opportunities that we throw at them. And so that's how we arrived at nutrition. We know that kids in our schools aren't going to learn effectively if they're hungry. It's the bottom line. And if we're going to continue to tout that education can be the great equalizer, that it is a way out of poverty and out of the socioeconomic conditions that kids are born into, then the least we can do is make sure that every kid is fed and that there's no stigma associated with being a quote unquote free lunch student. And so I started working on this issue through legislation called Breakfast After the Bell. And the progress of this policy has really been incremental. So Breakfast After the Bell essentially says that breakfast in schools has to be, yes, you like breakfast. Breakfast after the bell essentially says that breakfast has to be served after the first home rule bell 
in schools. And the reason for that is that there's a lot of research that shows that more kids actually eat that breakfast if it's in homeroom or after that first bell than the students that have to be there before the first bell because transportation isn't available to get students to school that early, whether it's the bus or for parents to drop them off that early. And so what the research shows is that once schools move breakfast from, hey, you have to be at school 30 minutes before the first bell to get it, to, hey, you can get it in homeroom or you can get it on your way to the first period, we see a dramatic increase in breakfast participation in our schools. And so we started with that bill. We passed that bill, which was super exciting. And like many issues, policy is incremental. And so students were still under the free reduced price system, but at the very least, they were able to get this breakfast after that first bell. Then we arrived at universal school meals. And again, the research there shows that if we're able to provide free breakfast and lunch for every student, not only do more kids eat, and not only do we actually close the gap of students that need the universal school meals, but don't qualify for free meals because of the stringent federal guidelines on income limitations. But we also reduce the stigma and improve the social fabric of our schools because now we're not putting kids into different buckets of classes. And so there's all sorts of benefits that we see to providing free breakfast and lunch to every student. And the best thing about the pandemic really was we, we were able to test that. We had the federal government provide universal school meals for two years. And from that, we were able to get some really good data around how high the participation rates jumped once we made it available to everybody and what the social effects were on the student body. And so from that, this last year, we were hoping that the federal government would extend universal school meals, but unfortunately they did not. And here in Massachusetts, we had a bill to permanently make all school meals free for every student. What we were able to get past, thankfully, is a one-year extension. So for the entire school year, uh, this year, uh, students will have universal free breakfast and lunch. Uh, and the hope is that we'll be able to make it permanent next session if the federal government doesn't step up to the plate. It's an amazing policy and so impactful. And I got to say, I, we were mentioning before we got started that Ruben would be by far our cutest <laughs> podcast guest. You're also our first singing podcast guest. So <laughs> all kinds of firsts going on on this. Oh, boy. <laughs> Apologies in advance. <laughs> no, no, no. It's all, it's fantastic. So as you said, right, like it's about these fundamental issues that are people are looking to government to solve. And if we can get at them, we can move the needle. You've also done a lot of work on zoning and affordable housing. Can you talk about not only what you've done, but how to engage in that, what is often a difficult conversation at the state and local level around these issues? Yeah, I mean, look, one of the main challenges of housing is that it's so localized, right? And we're also dealing with decades worth of zoning decisions and systems level decisions that still have repercussions today. And so I think the reality is, is that the state has to take a more active role in producing housing, creating the right carrots and the right sticks for municipalities to produce housing, because candidly, most aren't going to do it on their own, regardless of the fact that they need it, right? Every municipality here in the Commonwealth is affected by our housing crisis in some way. And so every municipality has to play a role in ensuring that we're producing the housing necessary for our workforce, for our seniors, for students, for first-time home buyers. Every level of housing stock is needed here. And so last session, we were able to pass in the Economic Development Bill, 
legislation that mandated that we create multifamily zoning near transit-oriented locations. And so any city or town that lives within a certain radius of a commuter rail stop, a subway stop, a bus station stop, is going to have to zone for multifamily housing near that stop. Now, this isn't going to completely solve the housing crisis on its own, but it's a tool in the toolbox to make sure that we're producing housing in different communities across the state. And I also think that there's a sort of misconception around affordable housing and, and who needs it, right? I mean, you see this all the time. People hear about an affordable housing project coming to their community and they're up in arms about why do we have to have low-income housing? Why can't we just have market rate? The reality is, is that the people who need that housing are their neighbors, right? We have in Haverhill, for example, about 42% of the population qualifies for some form of subsidized housing, right? Almost half of all of our residents would qualify for whether workforce housing, affordable housing, some level of subsidized housing. And so this idea that affordable housing is about the others, right? That the others are coming, quote unquote. No, they're, they're about us, right? They're about our neighbors, they're about our friends, our family members, teachers, you know, residents, everyday people that you know. And so we have to start to change the culture around that and make sure that people see housing as the huge positive that it is and see it as existential because it, it is, it's not hyperbole. Housing is an existential crisis to our state because people can't afford to live here. And if people can't afford to live here, then companies aren't going to move here because they can't acquire the talent and so on and so forth. So housing is a big priority of mine. We have a, a broader a piece of legislation as well that we filed uh, and that we're working on for next session relative to accessory dwelling units and inclusionary zoning. But we're really excited about the multifamily zoning that we were able to pass and is now taking effect and hopefully will produce a lot more housing across the state. Are you seeing the projects starting to form and be proposed uh, as a result of your laws? So the guidelines just got finalized and cities and towns will have about a year to come into compliance. However, we do know of several developers that have gotten excited about the opportunity now to be able to build in areas that perhaps they, they wouldn't have been able to before. How do you decide going into a legislative session what areas you're going to focus on? And there's a lot of need out there. Where are you being focus your time and energy to try to move the needle forward for your constituents? So the number one area where we get our policy ideas are from our constituents. We look at First and foremost, what are we getting via our constituent services? What are the number one cases that we're getting are either impossible to solve or have some really good policy ideas coming through them? And so housing continues to be the number one constituent case that we get both by volume and by the number that we literally cannot solve because there's nowhere to place people. So that's why housing continues to be a big you know, priority for me. So sort of constituent services is one area where we get a lot of our policy ideas. The other area is just sheer research, knowing the pulse of your district and knowing the problems that residents are facing, and then going out and doing some research around what are some best practices and policies that other states might be doing? What are some areas that we might be missing here in Massachusetts? And then the third bucket is talking to advocates. Of course, advocates have their own ideas and their own agendas to move forward. And so we spent some time talking to folks in the policy areas that are priorities for us so that we can nail down some specific policies that we think we can build coalitions for that actually have a chance at passing next session. 
So I would say those are the three areas is the sort of constituent services, general research, and then hearing from advocates. Fantastic. So what's next? Well, I guess actually before we get to what's next, I'm super curious. You have a baby, you have a young family, you're in a, the biggest profile and courage you list on your website that your wife is a Yankees fan. So how do you think about your political future as you're trying to balance all these competing demands? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And candidly, I'm still figuring that out as I have my, my kiddo here today. It's a day-to-day thing where you first and foremost focus on the job that you have right now and making sure that you're doing it right. And that includes being a dad, being a husband, towards being a state representative. And then it also includes make sure that constituents know that you're doing your job, right? That you're responding to all their concerns, that you're solving their cases, that you're filing legislation that reflects their priorities and their concerns. And then it's also doing the things that prepare you for the opportunities that are next. So, you know, I might not have an idea right now as to what I might be running for next, but there are things that I can do now, including doing my job right, right now, that could help me make sure that I'm ready for that next opportunity. It's as that saying goes, that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. As we wrap up here, if I had 24 hours in Haverhill, what should I do? Yeah, so I have to correct it because if not, my constituents would kill me. Haverhill. Haverhill, thank you. Yeah, one of those Massachusetts towns that are tough to to (laughs) pronounce. (laughs) 24 hours in Haverhill, I would first and foremost spend some time downtown so you can see what has happened in terms of the transformation of these historic mill buildings that used to produce shoes into these beautiful lofts, apartments, and business storefronts. It's a really interesting story in Renaissance that the city has gone from. We used to at one point produce one out of every 10 women's shoes in the country. And now, of course, we don't have any shoe manufacturing here in Haverhill. But the downtown has this beautiful landscape of old mill buildings that have now been repurposed. So I would spend some time walking around downtown. I would then go to Winnie Castle. Winnie Castle is this beautiful park that the city owns. And there's an actual castle at the top. People get married there. There's weddings there. There's a Harry Potter festival that happens there. There's a car show there. So a lot of great activities happen there. And then lastly, I would recommend kayaking on the Merrimack River. The Merrimack runs right through the middle of Haverhill. It used to be so polluted that nobody would get anywhere near the river because, of course, all the factories used to dump all of their factory solutions into there. But now it's made a comeback and we have, you know, fish, we have wildlife, we have kayaking and you can kayak all the way from Havel out to the Atlantic Ocean. It would take you a few hours, but uh, I did it myself um, and I would highly recommend it. That's fantastic. I'm actually curious because New England and Massachusetts, there's such a rich, long history, yet it's constantly evolving. When you think about your hometown 10 or 20 years from now, as Ruben drags you down to the courthouse to file papers, nomination papers. What do you see for your community? Well, I hope that we're a community that has advanced when it comes to making sure that anyone who comes here can actually make it, you know, whether that's making a product that they want for their business, making a better life for their kids, making their dream home a reality. This is a city where people come to because they see opportunity and we have to live up to that reputation. And so my hope is that 
20 years from now, maybe even sooner, we have you know universal child care. We have higher home ownership rates. We get folks into homes that they can build equity and intergenerational wealth into. We have a beautiful landscape all across the city that reflects the needs of our climate. And that we're a place where people continue to come to, to realize their full needs and their full potential. I love that vision. May it happen to your town and, and all towns. Amen. <laughs> Representative Vargas, Ruben, thank you for uh, joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you part of the New Deal Network and to watch your leadership play out in Massachusetts and be looked at for a, and across a lot of hometowns and states across this country. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be a part of the New Deal Network. And I'm so excited about what New Deal leaders are doing across the country. And I'm just super proud to, to be a part of this. And thanks for having me and my assistant here today. <laughs> my pleasure. Always, always. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.